you know, we've been looking at this idea and, and to focus, and I, I'm, I'm going to, I told you already, I gave you a warning, and you're going to hear it all year, that we've got this call, we've got this, we've got to keep this in our vision this whole year and, and into the future, that we are here to gather, grow, and go. Those three words have got to resonate. They've got to just bounce around in our head and our heart. They've got to take root, and we've got to understand and know and live with this with this, this missional thing in our, our lives that we would gather as God's people, we would grow as God's people, and we would go as God's people. Those simple three words, that they would just permeate us. They would cause us to move and to, to be everything that God wants us to be. Not just what we think we want to be or God wants, but that God wants us to be. And over the last couple of sermons, we, we've observed that gathering is a priority in the Christian's life. There's no exception. It's got to be. It must be. It ought to be. It has to be a priority in the Christian's life. First, gathering is a priority because it's biblical. There is no exception to that. You read through all of Scripture. We saw some of the history in the Old and in the New Testament. And the, the, word of the, the use of the word ecclesia, the gathering, the assembled, and how that term was used, the church of God, the called out ones. But gathering is biblical. It is absolutely biblical and has its foundations in the Bible and from God's heart and mind and His will. And secondly, gathering is a priority because two weeks ago we looked at it is beneficial. It is beneficial. What a great, great thing it is to know that it is something that is biblical because God knows that it is beneficial because we're reminded in our text in Ecclesiastes that two are always better than I'm glad six of you remembered that. That's great. Two are better than? Two are better than? That's why we gather. Gathering is beneficial. And when we go together, there are many benefits. And we looked at four of those things in the Scripture from two weeks ago in Ecclesiastes. It is beneficial. Two are better than one. And and when we better understand these biblical reasons, that it it has its foundations in in the Bible, and that that it's beneficial, when we know that about gathering as God's people, it protects us from some of the forces, from some of those things that tend to weaken our worship today. I want to list three of them for you, just as, just as a quick thing before we move to the, the third and final um, thing about gathering this morning. See, a strong theology or a strong biblical understanding of the priority of gathering, it combats, it fights against, it puts down formalistic worship. It, it combats it every single time. And what I mean by formalistic worship, maybe it's more important to say that it's ritualistic worship. True Christians gather because they get together, not because they have to gather. That's a big difference. Some of you are here this morning. I don't know who you are, but sometimes I feel like I can tell by your posture and your body language that you're here because you have to be here. I won't make that judgment. I'll leave that to God. That's between you and Him. Some of you are here like that. And there's, can I be honest, a smaller contingency here that has gathered here today and gathers every Sunday because they know they get to get together with God's people. 
And they can experience the Spirit of God moving among us when we sing, when we pray, when we call out, when we hear the scripture, Scriptures. And there's a joy in it. See, the first one is that when you get together because, because you have to, it's, it's all driven by guilt. And you have a checklist. And you know, well, i got to do this for God. i got to do this. My parents said this. My, 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 my grandparents did it, so i got to do it. It's part of my tradition. It's Sunday morning. Oh, I don't really want to, but I'll get up. I'll go at 1030 service. And I'll gather with God's people. And... And it's guilt-driven. And it's guilt-driven. But if you come knowing that you get to get together with God, it's a privilege, it's a priority. You approach the whole idea of gathering because it's laden and filled and permeated with grace. All about grace, not guilt. The idea that we can gather. Because we're all works of grace and we're still in process in the work of grace of God. And it's a grace thing that we can gather. And so when we understand how powerful that is, that it's biblical and that it's beneficial, we can combat that from coming into our mind. Ah, I'm just going to go through the motions. It's formalistic worship. No, when we know we can get together. It's awesome powerful and spirit-filled. It's amazing stuff. Secondly, a strong theology or understanding biblically of gathering together and assembling as God's people combats individualistic worship. Individualistic worship. The service is a gathering of those who have committed to help each other endure to the end. We kind of looked at that two weeks ago, where two are better than one. But this keeps us focused on the good of others, and it prevents us from seeing church as a program that's offered merely and just for our personal inspiration. It's all about me. It's about me. It's what I want and my preferences. And, 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 all. and, and, it, and it, that's not what it's about. It's about others. It's about, it's about the body. It's not about the one part of the body. It's not about you. It's about everybody else. It's about Jesus first and everybody else. You've you got to go off to the side a little bit. And the, the, the beautiful part about it is that, is, is that when you approach it that way, in the end, because somebody else views it that way, you're a blessing to them and you give of yourself and they bless you and then you're all good and you don't even worry about yourself anymore. I mean, really, I don't mean to speak in ideals. That's what God designed. And it should be working and functioning that way. It's not about the individualistic worship that it's just me and I'm here and is it good enough for me? Oh, man, they sang that song in the beginning. I don't even know it. I, I wish I, I can't even sing. Oh, they don't even sing any hymns anymore. All they sing is contemporary songs. Well, when they do, we do sing a hymn, you're like, uh it's not about that. It's about the corporate. It's about it. We're all different, right? And there's different styles. And it's, we've got to combat that individualistic worship when we get together and we understand the benefits of being together and that it's biblical. And lastly, one more. The, we have a strong understanding of gathering that's biblical. Man, it just puts down, it wipes away, and it smacks consumer-oriented worship in the face. Worship that is consumer-oriented. What God's Spirit is doing in the whole church is more important than being comfortable or having my preferences met. 100%. Each believer experiences the joyful freedom of taking the focus off self and putting it on God and others. There really is a freedom there. Let me just make a statement here, not to, re, to, to, to go back a few weeks ago, and, and it's not a negative thing, but it's just in light of where we are today as the world and where these forces that come against us and how it's so, we're so consumer-driven and we want what we want when we want. Listen, listen carefully. The ultimate consumerism isn't going to church. It's not. 
The ultimate consumerism or form of consumerism is not about going to church and being with the gathered ones and being with God's people, the believers, on a Sunday morning or a smaller group context or whatever, but when you gather. It's not that. You know, you know what the ultimate consumerism is? It's walking away from the church. It is. And doing church how you want, when you want, and where you want. Isn't that the definition of consumerism? And then you add, you sprinkle it with other things that you want, and then you can, you can indulge in it and whatever, and it satisfies you and it tickles you and whatever, if you will. It's, no! That's the ultimate definition of consumerism. And so it will, when we understand how important it is, it, we will put down and we will resist having a consumer-oriented worship approach to our gatherings. God help us to do that. Today, we look to Psalm 133. And we've heard sermons here in the past. I remember at Grace Fellowship, uh, this this message, and I remember I I have a vivid image connected to this message of something we did at the end of service. And it's a beautiful thing. And again, I had this memory, and it even lifts me now, because it's the power of gathering. and, and, And again, in this scripture, we find the third beautiful thing and priority that the result of that priority in gathering and that is simply this is that that gathering oh it's biblical secondly it's beneficial where are we at and lastly all right it's beneficial we talk and then lastly it's beautiful gathering is beautiful and you'll see that up there during the sermon but gathering is beautiful and we find in psalm 133 that gathering truly is beautiful now here you have to understand something before i read that psalm The Jewish pilgrims, they sang this song when they went to Jerusalem. They made a pilgrimage, and they did this a few times, but absolutely once a year, they all did it. All the tribes, all the families, all the ages, the, the entire demographic, everyone would go down to Jerusalem. And listen, they did not sing solo, or they did not travel alone. And they came to all the feasts, the holy days they had, from many different walks of life, regions, and tribes. Hello? Who's here? We're coming from all kinds of backgrounds and, 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 and things that we're involved in and our vocations, our callings, our skill sets, our gifts and, and our, our temperaments and everything else. And we've come together because we're walking on this, this journey of life. And, the, and, and here we go. These, these pilgrims were traveling. And no matter how hard it was on their journey, the fellowship of God's people along the way made that journey refreshing. Made it refreshing. Look, as I mentioned, we are on this journey. We're pilgrims here on this earth. The Apostle Peter said so. We're, just, we're strangers and aliens. We're passing through. We're not here forever. And we have this destination. We have our heavenly home waiting for us. And we are traveling together. Or hopefully we are. It's foolish to try to be a believer in isolation. The moment we become Christians, we become part of a body of believers. The body of Christ. And King David is the author of this psalm, and this is what he writes in those three verses in Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. Can you just envision that? Me being doused with a gallon of olive oil? You'd probably be entertained. Verse 3, 
It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows His blessing, even life forevermore. Under David's leadership, the twelve tribes of Israel were united. They put aside tribal jealousies, and in the spirit of cooperation, they became a united kingdom under his leadership. And this enabled David to strengthen the nation and to establish the capital in Jerusalem. See, the basis of Christian unity is our common relationship that we have to our Heavenly Father and to Jesus Christ, His Son. When man sinned against God in the beginning, the first disaster to befall him after being driven from Eden and from fellowship with God was that one brother raised his hand against the other. Do you remember that story? Man, it makes me, why does it make me emotional? It's like so tragic and sad. When Cain killed, when he slew, when he murdered Abel's brother, not only was that first murder committed, but it showed that the brotherhood of man had also been put to death. Things were never the same. And people were always against each other. And they were trying and working through all their differences throughout human history, even early on, to unite. But they were never unified. Not really. Not in their spirits. Many throughout history have tried to resurrect, you think about this, the notion of the brotherhood of man. That we're all one, we're all together, we're all good. Right? We're all all the same. Well, we are in many ways. But the brotherhood of man absolutely cannot come through the organizations of men, of people, of humans. It can't. See, people can join clubs and lodges and all kinds of stuff. They can find or or establish all kinds of organizations. They can promote ecumenical movements. But that will never produce true brotherhood among humans. Never. There can be no universal brotherhood of man apart from a universal fatherhood of God. I'm going to say that again. There cannot be a universal brotherhood of men apart from a universal fatherhood of God. And the Bible makes it clear that God is not the Father of all. It does. The Bible is clear. He is the Creator of all. God is the Creator of all. But He is the Father only of those who are born again, born from above, born of the Spirit of God. John 1.12 says, But as to many, many of those who called on His name to receive Him, He gave them the right to be called the children of God, even those who believed on His name. And they're called the children of God. And then it says right after that, that they are those who are not born of, of flesh and blood, but of the Spirit. They're not born of the flesh, but of the Spirit of God. They're born again. That is when God becomes our Father and we are His children. In John 17, we might be familiar with this, but we find that Jesus is praying for His disciples and actually He's praying for all believers. By extension, when you read the context and the actual words. He's praying. And in verses 13 to 26, as He's calling out to God His Father, we find that Jesus sanctifies And He cleanses and He sets apart and He saves His people by His Word and by His work. He saves and He prays that the truth would sanctify His disciples continually and by extension in the next section also to us, the future believers. And then He prays that all believers would be one after they're sanctified by truth, the Word, the Gospel. 
by himself, by Jesus and what he did, but that they would be one, those disciples who would be establishing the first church who became apostles, and also us, that they would be one, just as he and the Father and the Spirit are one. But he and the Father, he said, are one. And then, thirdly, he prays that God's glory would be evident and proclaimed as a result of the unity that exists among God's people. There is sanctification that brings us together and we're set apart for God. We're saved. We're called into His family. Then there's a prayer for one and the Spirit of God makes us one when we're born again and we're brought into the body of Christ. And then the result of that is, is that God's glory is made evident and known because, well, we're, we're one. We're, we're united. We're in unity. A true practical demonstration of brotherhood in action is found among those who know God as their Father and our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why David says, it's good, and it's pleasant that we live together in unity. See, you can gather. We can gather. And people do gather. And you get together with others, and they might even be believers. Maybe it's with your family members. Do you guys know, have you experienced the difference between ugly gatherings and beautiful gatherings? Yes, you have. I can see a lot of this going on over there. Yep. Yes, you have. We've all been part of that. And we know that ugly gatherings are ugly because they are filled and overflowing with selfishness. Self-adulation, self-elevation, self-focus. It's all about that. And Paul writes about that in Philippians chapter 2, the first two verses. He says that if you have the joy of the Lord, and you have compassion and love, the fellowship of the Spirit, if you have Christ's love, if you have all these things, you have, then make my joy complete, he says. And he says, how do you do it? Be of one mind, one love, one, one's purpose. He outlines these things that we would be united. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Him. It's all about His glory. It's all about His Word and His worship. It's all about that. And it becomes a beautiful gathering. When you take all these things out, you have ugly gatherings. Because self dominates. But when we submit to Jesus, He takes over and then we become selfless because He Himself was selfless. selfless. And that's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. Selfishness doesn't work in promoting unity. But we need to make sure we put that aside so we can understand the good and the pleasant in unity. Two quick things. The psalm has two poetic images, you'll notice. The first one is the image of oil. The first, this verse gives a snapshot of the day when Aaron was first anointed as high priest over the new nation of Israel. That oil that was poured over his head probably contained, well, it did contain several strong spices. There was a formula that God gave for the anointing oil for the priests, even for kings and prophets that were anointed. And they were blended together. There was myrrh, there was cinnamon, there was calamus, and there was cassius. If you want to find those, go to Exodus chapter 30 and verse 22 and on to verse 33. There's a whole description of what that formula is. And it's sacred, it's holy, it's God-ordained. And these spices were blended together in olive oil. Olive oil was the base. It was the main thing, that it was the, the base of that ointment that was used, that oil that was poured out. Now it's amazing, because in Scripture, if you read all of Scripture, oil is always symbolic of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. 
Now, let me tell you something powerful in this. The idea about the oil and how beautiful it is when we gather together. How beautiful it is how God has gathered us to himself so that we can be the ones who gather together. I look across this sanctuary and I see some of you, no names, you guys are sweet. I see some of you here and some of you are spicy. I see some of you here and some of you are sour. I see some of you here and some of you are bitter. I see some of you, and I could keep going with some of these descriptions, but it's all a picture of what's going on here with this prescribed oil and how it's such a beautiful picture of what it means to be united and gathered and one in God's presence as His people on a regular basis. You see, when you have that olive oil and you dump in these spices, because even, even it's, there's a spice here, it's called calamus. Calamus, they took calamus, and it grows in swampy areas, and they go down into the roots, and the roots have like this, this bitter yet kind of spicy you had a hint of sweet. It's a weird flavor. And, and when they grind that up and you take that and you blend it in, it has that bitterness. What's cinnamon? Cinnamon's pretty sweet, right? I mean, generally, right? So you put those things together and you, you put them in that oil and they get infused, right? Now, let me ask you something. If you just take those separately and you put them all together, just like if you take all of us separately, some are sour, some are sweet, some are bitter, some are whatever, and you put us all together and there's no oil and we can't be blended by the Holy Spirit, then we have a mess on our hands. We have fighting and selfishness and we want it my way and we react. But when we're brought into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God with all our spiciness and sourness and sweetness. And then it's like, you know, when you have your secret uh, homemade uh, salad dressing and you won't share it with anybody and you've got that base formula of oil, whatever it is, whatever kind of oil it is, then you add your spices. You won't even tell people what they are. And on their own, it would be like, Ugh. but then you put them all together. It tastes and it smells so good, even on that salad. Then you take a bite and you're like, Wow. That is beautiful flavor. But on its own, some of those spices and whatever, mm, it's better together. And it's beautiful. When the Holy Spirit brings us together and it's all mixed and it's just this amazing fragrance that comes out of it. And listen, this image strikes me as kind of messy, doesn't it? Here it's running down on Aaron's beard. And I don't know how big his beard is, but I'm sure it's bigger than Harry's beard over there. A lot bigger. And that oil gets in there and it's everywhere and stuck. And it probably took him like 16 showers to get it all out of his beard. And it's all over his cloak that's made for that special occasion as a priest. And it comes all over him. And I wonder how they wash it out. I don't even know. Tide couldn't even do it. I don't know. But it's everywhere and this picture is there. But unity, the beautiful picture and the bigger picture and the amazing picture is, is that unity blends us together. The Holy Spirit brings us together, blends us together, and He blesses us because of that blending. The olive oil is so powerful, again, with the Spirit of God and how it symbolizes that in the Scriptures. And the Apostle writes about how this unity comes about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 13, the Apostle Paul says this, For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form two bodies. One body, thank you. Thank you for one person listening this morning. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given two spirits to drink. One spirit to drink. Keep you on your toes. You were baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, or whether you're rich or poor, you're whatever you are, wherever you come from. And we were all given the one spirit to drink God's spirit. 
Remember, when Aaron was anointed with oil, he was drenched with it. Drenched. It was running down. Oil covered everything. And that's the thing. That's the thing this morning, is that unity should cover everything that we do. And unfortunately, we fight with that, don't we? Because, well, I'm in the mix. You're in the mix. But unity should cover everything we do. All of us. All of us. All of us. If we're going to maintain unity in the church, we don't need just a little droplet of the Spirit. We need a good drenching. This is where the fire's got to stay in my bones. That's why, that's why unity must fill our environment. When Aaron stood there with the anointing oil running off his head and flowing down his garments, the whole temple was filled with the scent of sacred perfume. And it smelled good and it was beautiful. It wasn't repulsive. It made you want to go in. And not even that, when you went in, it made you want to linger. It was a beautiful fragrance. The aroma was inescapable and everyone noticed it. And when we come together as a church, the smell of unity should fill the building. And if it does, the aroma will not be contained here. It will flow out and fill the community around us. And people will be drawn to Christ by sweet aroma of unity. How good and how pleasant, how beautiful is the aroma when brothers live in unity together. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.14 that through us, Christ spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Do we smell good or are we stinky? We are to be a sweet perfume in a decaying world. See, oil softens the skin and it's even used as a salve to heal wounds. Did you know that a lot of the things you put on your skin, read the ingredients, you'll find that petroleum is there. Surprise. By the way, oil's everywhere. And it costs a lot right now. But it's everywhere. It's in everything. It's powerful stuff. It just as it was in ancient times as it is now. And how beautiful it is when God's people get together. And again, it would be good at this point to say, that David must not be misunderstood to speaking of uniformity here. There is a difference between unity and uniformity. Because let me tell you something, I don't want you to be me. Please, don't be me. Be like Jesus. Be be like the Spirit of God. Be with the Word. Listen, I mean, yeah, you could be more like Colin, because he's probably way better than I am. But please don't be like me. And 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 truthfully, I don't want to be like you. I want to be like Jesus. And I want to be me, who Jesus makes me to be. You know what I mean? So, so we, it's not about that. But we, but we have, there's that amazing diversity that God brought all of us together, and yet He brings it all together. And we're not supposed to be rubber stamped into a similar form. The church is not to be involved in cooker, cookie-cutter Christianity. Where we're all bent out of shape over pet sins or pet theologies and pet nuances in Scripture that we get hung up on and make it our agenda to make sure we blast everybody who doesn't believe that or says this. And then we lose unity in the process and the Spirit of God can't move and flow and do His work and make us a powerful church in the last day. Sorry, but it happens all too often and God doesn't... And it's ugly. It even sounds ugly when I talk that way, don't I? Because it is ugly. 
Christian unity is a heart union of believers. It's relational, and it's in the Spirit of God, ready to work together for the purpose of glorifying God and furthering the work of His kingdom. The church. This is the beautiful thing as we're sitting here. The church. God's people gathered. It's so beautiful because it gives the entire world a front row seat to the grace of God. When they look at you and they look at me, they can go like, whoa, you used to be that, but now you're this? Whoa, how can you hang out with that person? They're so different than you. And they, but it's God. And he's made us all part of the same body. And in musical production, there are a variety of singers and players, aren't there? And yet, in spite of great diversity of instruments and voices, they can play together in harmony. Why and how? Because they look to and obey the direction of the conductor. And so David speaks of a unity of diverse people based upon their common relationship to God and their willingness to look to him and to obey him. And the second picture, and quickly, is the picture of dew. The picture is that dew is like, unity is like dew. And in high elevations, the dew falls very heavy. And every dawn, the mountaintops are drenched. And the feeling is one of freshness and fertility. See, Israel in general is a very arid country. So the morning dew is very important if plants are supposed to grow. And the dew fell on the loftiest mountain peak, which is Mount Hermon, in the land of the northern tribes... This is amazing in this text here. And yet, as well as Mount Zion, one of the smaller peaks in the southern tribes in Israel. Travelers in the desert have been known to drink dew to stay alive, to survive. We need the dew of harmony if we're to flourish in our faith. Unity cannot be manufactured by human effort. It is a gift produced by the Spirit, and that all starts when we submit to God and to one another. Unity is ours in Christ if we just submit. See, most people try to get organized because they want power. For a political cause, for example. I won't even give examples. There's too many. And sadly, sometimes the church can act the same way. God forgive us. Too often you hear about power struggles between Christians. But power is not our goal. Our goal and our calling from God is unity. It is unity that pleases God. Not power, not success, not numbers, not size, not clever programs, not you keep going on with your list. It's unity. That's why the early church rejected all the normal ways of, if I could put it, getting organized. Here's the truth. They rejected totalitarianism. You know, absolute authority in the hands of a dictator. We see that today in our world, don't we? They rejected it, and rightfully so. The church rejected, the early church rejected anarchy because it's complete individualism where it's every man for himself and does whatever he wants. And rightfully so, it's rejected. And hold your breath. They even rejected democracy. The majority rule, which we're so familiar with in the U.S., which I wonder... Anyway, I'll stop. (laughs) Instead of these models, the early church, I believe, practiced what I would call spirit-directed unity. 
All under the lordship, the kingship, the rule, the headship of Jesus Christ as head of his church. And that's what they did. They were focused on the word. They were filled with the spirit as they submitted. And they went out and did everything God wanted them to do. Not their own program, not their own agenda. It was spirit-directed unity. God help us to have that. And when it was born in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, the church was a fellowship. When it went to Greece, when it expanded to Greece, the church became a philosophy. And then when it went to Rome, what did it become in Rome? It became an institution. An institution. So many of us are familiar with that. And then when it went to Europe, it became a culture. This cultural thing, everyone's a Christian and you've got to be a Christian. It's part of the culture. And then when it went to, and then it finally, when it came to America, the church became an enterprise. Oh man, how the church needs to return, return to being a fellowship. <sighs> Sorry, I, I'm just, I'm disheartened personally by how the church is such an enterprise anymore. And it's lost focus. All about the bottom line and numbers of people, not people, people. The unity we have is based on harmony with God Himself. When God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, He added, it's not good for man to be alone in chapter 2 and 18 of Genesis. This is the first time God said something was not good because we all need companions in the journey, just to reiterate that from three weeks ago, four weeks ago. See, do is a symbol of blessing. That's the, that's the beauty of gathering. Do is a symbol of blessing. When I listen to this, and I promise, I really, I do. This is my last page. I got like two paragraphs. I'm almost done. When Isaac blessed his son Jacob in Genesis chapter 27, 28, this is what he said. May God give you of heaven's dew. It's there. You can read it. It's a blessing. Meaning that, the, meaning that it's the resource of prosperity. It comes from above. And that dew from heaven is a resource of prosperity upon his son. And then Moses, he prayed that his teachings would descend like dew. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 2. And God declares in the prophet Hosea chapter 14, I will be like the dew to Israel, which will blossom like a lily. And boy, a lily, I don't like how it smells because it's strong, but it gives off a fragrance, doesn't it? Blessings descend to us, but we ought to receive them together as individuals. We get them, but we should, we should receive them together as God's people. We are blessed individually and we're blessed collectively. What dew and oil have in common is that they are both flowing down. David focuses on the source and direction of these blessings. They come down from above upon God's people. Unity is a gift of grace, and life forevermore is the ultimate blessing. It's salvation. And when we live together in harmony as God's people, we get a foretaste of eternal life in glory. We are part of a forever family. As we look around our church, we see people that we're going to spend eternity with in heaven. Oh yeah, even him. Oh, oh that's right, even her. We're going to spend eternity together in heaven. So let me ask you a question, and I'm asking myself this question too. And I don't mean to imply that everybody's going to be your best friend. But why not... Why not get to know 
them a little bit better. Like now. If we want a bit of heaven on earth, we can start now by uniting with others every way that we can, especially our brothers and sisters because of the bond we have in Christ. Paul, I close with this scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says this, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Nothing's left to be said except now let's do it. He brings us together, but there's a part that we have. We have a part to do too. We already are a body of Christ, but now will we function and act like we're united? By putting ourselves aside, elevating God and others, praying that God will first work in our hearts, and then pray also that God will work in the hearts of others. But don't do all that before you pray and work for unity yourself first. And then we'll enjoy that promise at the end of Psalm 133, which says, For the Lord bestows His blessing, even life evermore. Because there is something so beautiful about God's people gathering. Amen? Take that to heart. Next time we'll start a three-part thing and and the, the idea of growing and how important that is. And I encourage you to gather Throughout the week, connect with each other. Make it a make it a something you get to do. You look forward to getting to do when you get together with God's people, and see God's grace in action. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. I pray that you would take, Lord, this scripture, Holy Spirit, take uh, the truths, the principles, and just, Lord, may they go deep in our souls. God, may we act on them, Lord, with your help as we submit and surrender to the truth and to your Spirit. Guide us as our Lord, as our Good Shepherd that we might know the fullness, the blessing, the, the, the benefits of even just, Lord, the beauty of the oil and the dew that, that speaks of the blessing and harmony we have as your people. Lord, we give you all the praise. Help us to be one and help us to share who you are to everyone around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.